Hello, my name is Diana. I'm here in Kyoto on a residency. Um, I'm a Romanian-born artist based in Brussels, uh, and I work with sound, performance, and writing quite broadly. Ah, uh, yeah. So, I have noticed uh, that you seem to have an occupation um, with language, which is quite pervasive in your work. Um, can you point to the moment when this fascination began or what kind of sparked this interest in words and language? I guess at some point I asked myself the same question um, because I noticed that I was working a lot with language or I had a fascination for it or a kind of focus on it in a lot of works. So I went and did a, a master's in socio-cultural linguistics in um, London. Um, and this was really interesting because it made me look at language from a kind of academic uh, point of view, which I hadn't done before. And it well also made me realize that I don't really want to be in academia in that way, but it also gave me a um, kind of opened up new working uh, processes because what I studied was mostly based on uh, spoken language. So oral communication between people and specifically how people speak whether it's in daily life or in the media and so on so it was like a study of language as it is used um, and what it carries or conceals within it okay and, and did you have the intention of um, kind of feeding this back into your art practice when you when you started to study linguistics well actually i um in the beginning, I thought I would just focus on studying language and uh, and then you know write or pursue it in a in a different way. But while um, during and afterwards, I realized that yes, it is something that I want to kind of integrate in my in my artistic practice. And also because then I started working um, as in my working life, I started working as an interpreter, and then I extracted a lot of these uh, this experience of as an interpreter and uh, channeled it into a project called Having Purple Eyes that I um, worked on for several years and then performed uh, a couple of years ago. Clearing the voice. <coughs> you are all you Okay, so you studied this kind of um, oral communication, and then of course interpreting is um, very kind of performative communication, and um, you're currently working with scores, which is more like kind of a visual representation of, of language. So I wonder how, how you kind of shifted to also this um, more visual take on language. Well, that's also kind of the uh, the research I'm doing here started from, I started researching the work of this uh, 
phonetician and teacher Alexander Melville Bell, who in the 1800s came up with a system of um, a universal phonetic alphabet called visible speech, um, which is a way to map every possible verbal and non-verbal sounds that a person can make and even non-human sounds. He had a very clear and comprehensive but insanely complicated system for this and I was just really drawn to the the visual way that he uh, yeah found a way to represent for example a consonant. He had 52 consonants in his system but the root of everyone is uh, C because that is kind of how the tongue is arched when you produce a consonant and then the root of all the vowels was an I because it represents the kind of voice passing through your glottis. So um, that it was just starting from looking into his work and then um, I started making these um, clay tablets with a, that I kind of inscribed with a, let's say, a random sampling of, of his symbols. Um, so yeah, that was also the starting point of, of this residency. You. I. I. Uh, okay, cool. So this um, visual speech alphabet um, is kind of the inspiration for this project. Uh, how did you meet this work or how did, uh, how did you discover this, this alphabet? And how are you using it here uh, during your residency at QO2? Uh, I think I discovered it by reading an article by Meg Miller called Spelling Spelling. Um, that was about his work. Around the same time I got an invitation from um, artist friend um, to produce some sort of small object that he wanted to uh, bury in Brussels as a sort of artifact for the future. So he collected a lot of contributions from uh, different artists. And so these tablets that I made with Bell's alphabet were part of these objects that were buried. And then uh, from that, I wanted to kind of use this um, residency as a frame to make a sort of sound documentation of these objects. So to invite um, people that would read uh, the inscriptions on each tablet um, that I then made into these circular scores and um, yeah, then make a composition that would act as a sort of document uh, for these tablets, but not a visual one, but the sonic one. Can you talk about a little bit about the process of um, recording these? Well, actually, first of all, maybe making the tablets or, you know, how, what, how you chose which, um, which parts of the alphabet that you would um, you inscribe in these, these clay tablets. And then also the process of having people re-perform these scores and what your role is in this. The tablets, yeah, they, they were very they are kind of easy made. It's just air drying clay that I kind of experimented with how long I need to leave it to air dry before I can 
kind of scratch some uh, marks into it. Um, and I tried to experiment with color, but I didn't really. Uh, I just left them kind of the, the natural um, clay color in the end. Uh, I just tried out different shapes and I tried out a, a kind of cylinder shape and I really liked the fact that it was continuing, like it didn't have a clear start point and end point. So from that, I, uh, when I made the scores, that is what is basically inscribed on each tablet, I also made the, the scores um, circular, so on a round piece of paper, so that it's um, kind of, yeah, looping. It's, a, it's as if reading a loop rather than going from A to B. Um, and so then I invited several performers, um, friends, artists that I worked with before who are all uh, working with or using voice in their work. Um, and I just, we spend some time learning this language or I kind of trying to teach them this language and uh, deciphering it together. And then they were kind of left. Uh, quite free in their interpretation so that they could kind of relate it to their own practice or uh, bring something from their own, you know, their own, let's say, persona um, into it. And what I found really interesting was that when listening to the material, that how rhythmically harmonious they were together so that everyone kind of, when you put them together and juxtapose them, you realize that there is a rhythm there and it's kind of, it almost becomes a song because I don't really know if it's the way the score is made or just people got into this repetitive mantra kind of mode of chanting the scores and it's actually oddly, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it fits even if they, no one ever listened to anyone else interpreting it or reading, yeah, singing it. So the the rhythm is what kind of ended up being more more homogenous than the than the phonetics themselves. Where what did you also did you care about the way that things were pronounced, or um, is this something that you kind of tried to control? So it's funny because basically I chose. But um, the selection of sounds uh, that is uh, that uh, composes each score is a, a kind of mix of verbal and nonverbal sounds. So it would be something that you're used to saying, like an L, um, even if it probably has three symbols. So it's very clear indication of where your tongue should be, where you say the L, and and so on. But it also contains other sounds. For example, that I find his alphabet quite poetic in this way because it's also these sounds of I don't know annoyance or pain or um, you know condescendence and things like this and then you you are kind of meant to read a score that tells you how to be condescending even if you know how you do it uh, and of course everyone else does it differently but for me it's really interesting that he devised like the way to show annoyance like this is how you do it you go like, oh, you know, and you're meant to do this thing with your mouth. And it was really nice to like learn that together. Like, okay, how does this sound like? And let's try. And, and yeah, ultimately everyone has their own kind of annoyance and, or 
pain or a growl or all of these kind of extra paraverbal um, sounds. And so, I, I mean, I wasn't so interested in, in this idea of correctness or kind of the perfect uh, growl or the perfect, uh, uh, you know, uh, yawn, but um, and more in kind of re like kind of backwards process where you learn how to do something that you already know how to do, obviously, but you kind of become really aware of what your, you know, your mouth is doing and your tongue and your like nose valve and all these parts of like that are this, you know, your body that becomes this resonating box or something. Okay, cool. So I didn't realize it was actually like so much about physicality and so much about emotion and expressing emotion actually rather um, than strictly making a universal language that could be uh, understood by anyone. Okay, so then actually on this idea of standardization, I wonder what your what your take it is on this idea of um, kind of standardizing speech or language or expression um, and the idea of notating all of the possibilities. Um, do you think this is a desirable um, outcome or remotely possible or what could be kind of gained or lost from this? So, I mean... It I think it obviously depends on uh, it's how you use it and what you use it for. Um, his alphabet, Bell's alphabet, was initially and primarily intended to teach deaf people how to speak because of its visual nature. So in that sense, it is really useful because if you actually, if you can't speak, this shows you very clearly how you're meant to it's basically the choreography of your mouth as you're speaking. So it is useful, but at the same time, because he wanted it to be so perfect and so capable of reproducing every accent, you know, this conversation we're having now, we're both speaking English using the same words. But if we would transcribe it in Bell's alphabet, it would be, you know, my... English would not be the same as your English because it would actually catch the accent or maybe the strange way that I pronounce something uh, and your, you know, way of pronouncing something. Like, they're, this, they're very, it goes down to really precise, defi uh, you know, ways of defining sounds and slurs and um, it goes in a lot of detail. So for that, I mean, it would be interesting to, you know, to be able to read something from a region and really hear its accent. But that also leaves very little to imagination if everything is so perfectly um, expressed and, and shown, you know, there's very little space for uh, imagining stuff, for dreaming, for kind of also projecting things, which from, an, you know, from the point of view of what, what I want to do with my work, maybe that's not you know, what I want. Or for a writer, maybe that's not what they would want. You know, a poet doesn't want to express everything and say, like, make a perfect description of the world. It's about also, like, power of suggestion and 
uh, also obscuring things. Um, so, I mean, his project was really ambitious and utopian, but ultimately it, it failed. And now we do have, you know, there's uh, IPA, International Phonetic Alphabet, that kind of does the same thing, but in a more kind of contained, simplified uh, way. So I think it's just um, Bell's project, this idea of standardizing everything and of, of describing everything in that a lot of detail is, is just, let's say, it's, it remains an oddity and is, is forgotten, but maybe, yeah, that's what makes it valuable as well, that it didn't actually become used, or it did have, like, limited uses in some schools and then they realized that it's easier to use other methods to help deaf people communicate so rouge ja ja Ocean. So then, okay, how does this uh, relate to perception and this kind of um, artistic desire to augment or control or um, represent perception? So that's why maybe I also like working with uh, language and particularly spoken language because it's, um, I think, uh, Joseph Kosut said that it's a speech act is a chair you can't sit on, which is something I really like. And it's this idea that it's sort of less tangible or less concrete or less graspable than other, um, you know, something that is staring at you, very object, objectual and so on. I think for this project, I really like the idea of taking something uh, very concrete and precise and kind of messing it up and trying, like picking and choosing, mixing it, making a score. And then, which is also, yeah, this concrete object and then having people interpret it in their own way and then making from that I, I, I'm actually trying to make a very kind of strict clear-cut composition of it so I'm trying not to muddle it but turn go back to a, a sort of very arranged thing um, and then all of this uh, result will um, end up being engraved on a record so again a process that is I'm kind of not really in control of like it's up to the person carving the record and their skill uh, so it again it becomes this kind of imperfect object so um, I'd really like this back and forth of um, having control and letting go and 
not needing to control everything. You are young. Could you maybe just like yeah discuss a little bit your process of editing um or yeah the post production of of these sounds yeah so like i said uh, before i was really surprised to find that some of these worked so well on top of each other it's almost like working in garage band and taking a sample of a snare and a sample of a, a drum like it just goes together and it's funny because they just were totally free to do it however they wanted and yet there is this um, kind of pulsating thing going on where they, everyone is taking breaks and letting space uh, between things. So I worked with that in the way that I just took um, maybe one recording as the kind of foundation or the baseline and then I um, try to add things from the other recordings on top of it in a way where it would echo, like they would either echo each other or be or, um, create a dialogue. So it would be two sounds that are maybe similar, very close or even the same or some kind of, yeah, small games that I came up with by listening to the recordings. So it was kind of intuitive in that way, like I just what sounds good together and but I also knew I wanted to make it as more of a structure than uh, than just uh, for example I could have just sampled every sound that everyone made and put it on a drum pad and played around with it but I kind of wanted to uh, yeah to sequence it together in, in, a, in a composition like turn it back into like an organized system almost. Can you describe some of the notations that we are listening to that kind of made it into the final piece and what maybe were some of your favorite ones or the ones that were the strangest? Uh, let's see. Um, regret. I quite like that one because actually before meeting uh, the performers I really didn't I just had a hard time with it. I didn't really know what it sounded like and I didn't try it out myself. So I just waited to uh, meet someone and look at it together and decide what regret sounds like. <laughs> so everyone, I think that one uh, was done um, quite differently, but I really like the um, kind of very theatrical interpretation of Camille that goes like, oh, oh. And also because I have the image that she came up with in her head, like, oh, it's, oh we're not going to the beach today. <laughs> and, then, oh, oh. <laughs> and that made it like extra, uh, you know, expressive uh, and easy for her to <laughs> visualize. Um, what else? Um, vexation is a nice one. It looks like three uh, tongues with like... Uh, this button that you skip a song back 
in between them. So that actually, so there's a lot of symbols that are not an actual sound, but a modifier of the sound. So in this case, this symbol, that is also like the symbol for, uh, you know, smaller than, what is that called? Yeah, lesser than. Um, so this means you're breathing in rather than breathing out, because when we speak, we, we breathe out. But for some of these sounds, you're meant to breathe in. So you'll go like, and this is a T. So you're meant to do something like, while breathing in, uh, and like with a with kind of like clear defined break in between each of the, <laughs> that's vexation. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of good ones. Uh, I don't know if I have a favorite, although I I do really like um, the fact that everyone uh, was quite creative in interpreting them. So they actually went uh, went for it and, you know, kind of changed it uh, quite a bit from what's on paper. I also like the fact that a vowel allowed uh, for a lot of play because you can, of course, uh, change the pitch and the duration. So it really um, created the space where you can just keep one sound for a really long time. Um, Oh yeah, and I quite like the flap of the tongue because you can just literally do it forever, which is when you're kind of meant to be touching your soft palate, which is something that happens if you try to breathe in through your nose and out through your mouth, you can kind of hear it click. And that's the same spot that you like hit when you flap your tongue. So it just sounds like like forever and it's quite a nice sound because you can do a lot with it. They all look like really weird symbols basically until you get to uh, decipher them. Um, and um, yeah, uh, sipping was another nice one, but I don't think anyone did that actually. I think it was more the sucking one. That was a P and a T, like And you kind of think of a baby or someone eating a lollipop or something like For the sipping one, yeah, it looks like kind of a backwards C and then the lesser than sign. So um, how do you interpret this? I think the backwards C is a, is a kind of your, your mouth is open and round, but very small. So you kind of go like and you breathed in, so that's the lesser than sign. Yeah, so that's it's kind of like, um, yeah, it kind of imitates a little bit the shape of your lips as a kind of small opening. And then there are all these symbols that tell you how your um, throat is, if it's like completely closed, so that like, no sound is passing, or if it's a little bit open, like if it's a whisper like this, like your throat is contracted, or if it's totally like you can't talk. Um, so that would be an X when it's totally contracted and a, a kind of slim O for when there's some sound coming out. So there's a lot of, there's one that is a symbol that is a vibrator, a symbol that is like meant to be your, your nose, like your nose valve is open. So it's like a nasal sound. Um, that was a chuckle. I think that was a difficult one. Not a chuckle, but um, a kind of ridicule. That was a tricky one because you're meant to 
kind of cough through your nose. So you go like, <coughs> and so that's the one where you have, you know, this nasal valve. And that was, uh, I think it was really interesting to explore all these things and think about them and try them out together. Like it was a funny choreography of, um, of, of speech. So I would like to thank the performers, uh, Camille Gerenton, uh, Simone Bassani, Barry Fitzgerald, Miriam Van Imschot, and Marcus Bergner for their amazing contributions to this project. Aya, 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 Aya. Planing wood. Pain. Oh. Pain. <laughs>